Welcome to episode 16 of Adventures in VHS, the podcast dedicated to the lost format of VHS. In each episode, I take a look at the UK home video release of one particular film from the shelves of my collection of ex-rental classics to pull apart the artwork and the trailers before getting into a full and frank review, complete with clips and highlights from the film itself. Every now and then, though, I also get to speak to one of the people involved in the making of said film uh, to get their thoughts upon it, as well as what the VHS era meant to them and how it impacted their career. And I'm very happy to say that this particular show is just such an occasion. But before I get onto the details of the episode itself, I should just say that if you're listening to this episode of Adventures in VHS, you must be one of the kind souls who have pledged support to the book on Unbound. So first of all, a huge thanks to you. And just to offer a bit of an update, as I record this, the book is 20% funded, so we are making very steady progress. Uh, But of course, there is still a long way to go, and I'll continue to be pushing the book under people's noses um, any which way I can, because every single pledge that we get really, really counts in in helping to make this project a reality. Um, As such, I would say, if you do know anyone who you think would like the book, please tell them about it. Uh, If, on the other hand, you'd like to buy them a copy for Christmas, there is a brand new pledge level that I've set up recently called the Adventures in VHS Christmas Care Package. And this basically means that after you pledge, I'll send out to you an exclusive care package. And in that care package, there's a bunch of goodies, including a specially selected mystery tape from my shelf uh, and a letter thanking you uh, for your support with a brief review of the, the videotape that I've sent to you. So you can just wrap that and give it to them on the big day and then they'll get their copy of the book around the same time as you do when we do go to print. And if you want more information on that Christmas care package, uh, just head to filmrant.co.uk and you'll find a post that I put up there which uh, shows off the care package in all its glory and has a little bit more detail about it. And one final point, 
If you know of anyone, or indeed if you are a person that falls into this category, who might like to sponsor uh, Adventures in VHS, uh, then please, please get in touch or tell that person to get in touch. There are sponsorship opportunities of all shapes and sizes, uh, from having a full page at the front of the book to sponsoring the podcast, uh, either individual podcasts or the whole damn thing, um, or just having your website, podcast or company logo appear on the sponsor page that we'll be adding to the back of the book. Um, whatever budget you've got, trust me, we can work something out. So if you would like to sponsor Adventures in VHS in any way, uh, just drop me a line. Um, you can get me through adventuresinvhs at gmail.com and I'll come right back to you. So as I say, we can work with anything, so just let me know what you want to spend. Um, so there you go. There's my book update and sales pitch out of the way. I think it's probably about time that we got on with the show. Um, now, Adventures in VHS episode 16 is a very special one for me for a number of reasons. Firstly, because it features a film that had a major impact on me as a kid. Um, and secondly, uh, because it was one of the first movies I ever covered for the Rentals Revisited series of articles that I wrote for Eat, Sleep, Live film, uh, which would eventually end up becoming Adventures in VHS. But also, it is the first show that I've done in a while where we've had an interview section. And what an interview it was too. Uh, thanks to an introduction from a young gentleman and friend of the Grim Up North Festival I met recently by the name of Colin McCracken, um, I wound up chatting to one of the genre directors whose name comes up on more than one occasion um, in the pages of Adventures in VHS, uh, and we chatted for over an hour and a half. Um, that whole conversation doesn't feature here, um, but there is a large portion of it, obviously, which is all around um, the movie that we're going to be covering. So stay tuned for my in-depth interview with Mr. Brian Usner, who is the man behind one of the strangest, most innovative and disturbing horror movies of the late 1980s, Society. Uh, but first, let me tell you a little bit about the film and my history with it, as I ask you to once more sit back, relax and get ready to adjust your tracking. For Bill Whitney... I've never been paranoid. Fear plays a large part in family life. I feel like something's going to happen. And if I scratch the surface, there'll be something terrible underneath. He's afraid his sister... Could you zip me up, Billy? ...is not what she seems. God, Bill, what's the matter with you? He thinks his friends are out to get him. Make waves with you. You're going to drown. People are what they are. Now you have to learn to accept that. He's about to find out the truth. <laughs> why, why are you guys doing this to me, huh? What, you've been living with these people all your life and you don't know anything about this? It's far worse than he could ever imagine. If you don't follow the rules, Billy, bad things happen. Didn't you know, Billy boy? The rich have all sucked off low-class scum like you. Uh-oh, guy. Clarissa? Don't be so intense. Now, some people make the rules, and some people follow the rules. It's a question of what you're born to. You never were one of us. You know, you really deserve what's going to happen to you. I, I don't think so. Wait. Can't you see they're setting you up for something? You know how I hate to give you drugs. You're officially dead. Don't go home, Billy. No, 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 no. Bill Whitney is about to become one. Showtime, Billy! With society. <laughs> Who are you? Let me give you a hand, Bill. 
In Beverly Hills, what you fear is only the beginning. Anything for society. One of the joys of Rentals Revisited, the series of articles I wrote for Eat Sleep Live Film back in 2010-2011, was that they opened up a whole load of memories and experiences for me that I'd I'd kind of long forgotten. They were initially supposed to be a series of reviews that were kind of loosely framed around how they they stood up uh, and how I remembered them. Um, but while I was getting stuck into those posts, I, I began to start for the first time writing about how important VHS was to me and how it allowed me to explore my love of genre films um, with, with very few boundaries, um, thanks to the relationship that our family had with the local rental store. And it's also where I came to realise that my taste in movies really was honed by those days and by filmmakers like those who have been interviewed for this podcast. Uh, much more so, in fact, than the bigger names uh, of the day, like Spielberg and Lucas, or even Zemeckis and Reitman. Um, and the criteria for the films that I picked out for those articles was very simple. Uh, they were films I vaguely remembered enjoying as a kid when I used to spend all day wandering wide-eyed around Video World in Swinton, that I'd then track down, though not necessarily on VHS, and watch again. Um, there was a fantastic supernatural revenge flick by the name of The Wraith, which some of you may know, uh, the thrilling neon-lit horror comedy Vamp, uh, the creepy demonic toy maker flick Dolls, um, and then two films with body horror at the centre of uh, the centre of their story. Uh, there was 1986's From Beyond and 1989's Society, both of which had a connection to one particular name, Brian Usner. The latter of these two films, Society, was the one that I had most interest in, though, as it was the one that I kind of had the deepest connection to, mainly because it had left me with images and ideas at the age of around 11, 12, which were very difficult to forget, but also because of how in the years that followed, I'd end up starting to wonder if the film even existed. Now, that's a very strange notion to try and get across to to some people today. The idea that you can see a film, it have an impact on you, and then in the years that follow, it just kind of disappears off the face of the planet and you forget about it and it becomes forgotten. The main reason for, for, for that being a difficult notion to get across, of course, is that everything today is not only so accessible, it's also just so well documented. Um... I'm pretty sure I only saw Society a couple of times before, and God only knows why, it vanished from my local store completely. Um, And it was, as far as I can see, never released again in any retail VHS form, so it wasn't, you know, it was never a sell-through title. Um, And as the VHS format was slowly replaced by DVD, it really looked like it had been consigned to the history books. It just didn't appear anywhere. Um... And I'd bring it up on occasion with people over the years, not necessarily, you know, not necessarily friends who were into sort of cult film and stuff like that, because I I'd never really had friends like that until I started podcasting. But, um, you know, I'd bring it up with people over the years and in my mid to late teens in particular, but no one ever had seemed to have heard of it. Uh, and when I explained the plot and what happens in the sort of, you know, the last 10, 15 minutes of the film, they generally look at me like I was making it up. So, um Apparently there was a Laserdisc release, Uh, I don't know if that was uh, US only or it came to the UK, but to be honest, that particular format never really existed in my world. Uh, In fact, I don't think I've ever even seen one of them play in my whole life. Um, But one of the things that DVD brought with it when it arrived, uh, certainly in the UK, which Laserdisc 
to my knowledge never really did was was it came with a whole new world of sort of uh piracy and bootleggery if you like um which meant that certain genre films would creep up at film fairs and comic conventions uh, and there was a couple of uh, of those type of uh, fairs and conventions that used to happen in Manchester that I used to to frequent, probably back in around the early 2000s, um, by which time I'd have been in my mid-20s. And, and like I say, by then it had been about 15 years since I'd watched or even seen Society Anywhere, and I'd started to think that my childhood memories of it were almost something that I'd made up, and, I, and, and you know, that I'd there was just some very vague blurry thing there and I, I couldn't remember the name of the film I don't think um and for the most part I'd kind of over the years that followed that I, I just largely started to forget the film really existed um now as I say the the important thing to to get across here is there was no internet to run a search on films where families have weird melty sex in the in the in the 90s um at least not in our house anyway um and it had probably become a case uh, by the time we got into the late 90s of sort of out of sight, out of mind. Um, I hadn't seen or heard of the film for, for so long that it just sort of, it just it just fell out of my brain. Um, that is until the day that I was flipping through some DVDs at a comic book fair in Manchester, uh, probably looking for anime DVDs or a copy of the, the Roger, Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie, um, when I noticed something very familiar indeed. It was the image of the mozzarella-masked woman slowly peeling her face away uh, while a guy in a bow tie and white scarf looks on. Um, and that's what it was. It was society. And I, I flipped it around and it all came flooding back. There was images of the, you know, some of the weird melty sex stuff that I'd been thinking about. And I, and I was kind of sh- shocked and and really pleased that I'd found it. I had it in my hand. This film called Society was that weird fucking film that I saw so many years ago. Um, which was amazing. I then spent the next five or ten minutes reading the sleeve carefully over and over again and gazing at the images on the back, and I just thought to myself, well, I have to buy this film immediately. However, for reasons I I can absolutely not fathom, I decided instead to put it down and come back later, and I probably thought I should make sure I didn't eat into my comics budget. I don't know. Uh, Maybe I just... I don't, I don't know why why I didn't immediately just buy it. Um, but as I'm sure you've probably guessed by now, when I went back to that stall, maybe half an hour later, it was gone. Um, and it was clearly a bootleg or some sort of import, uh, so it was kind of unlikely that I'd find it again. Uh, and I didn't. Um, a few years later, uh, I think in 2007, um, Tartan, or Palisades Tartan, uh, put the movie out into the world, or in, uh, across the UK on DVD, uh, albeit without the original cover and with a, a very badly rendered image of the the film instead that was not very interesting or not very atmospheric um and it, it but it despite that sort of uh, dvd making it out into the world it wasn't until um i wrote that review for for rentals revisited in, in 2011 that i'd end up sitting down and watching watching it all over again um so yeah, society went from being this really st- strong, impactful film with me uh, to being something that I kind of um, forgot a little bit about and then disappeared off the face of the planet and then came back and I got to experience that whole thing all over again for what would ultimately be um, the start of of this Adventures in VHS um, escapade, if you like. So for the review section of this episode, I thought I'd do something a little bit different. 
rather than come up with an all new review, um, although I have rewatched the film for, for the podcast, of course, um, I thought it might be fun to just go back and uh, dig into that article, to just read that article. First up, though, uh, after this short break, I will take a look at the sleeve of uh, Society's 1989 UK Medusa Pictures VHS release, uh, and we'll get a look at the trailers. <laughs> All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh, us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Okay, so here we have it. The uh, the a copy of the tape uh, and indeed the film that eluded me for so many years for some reason before the dawn of the internet. It's Society uh, by Brian Yuzner. And um, I hold in my hand the uh, Medusa Pictures release of that film. Um, it is, as you would expect, a beautiful cover. Um, there are two quotes across the top. One for uh, one from Fair magazine, which says "Movie of the Year," which is quite a claim. That's nice. Um, and the Daily Mail just simply refers to it as outrageous. Um, I'd be really interested to know what the rest of the Daily Mail review of uh, of society was. Um, I can't imagine it had been too kind. Um, but anyway, yeah, so then there is the uh, the main image, which is, <clears throat> as I'm sure you'll have seen, um, a beautiful lady slowly removing her face um, while a gentleman in a, in a dinner jacket looks on from behind. Um, now, interestingly, I've always kind of thought that the, uh, the guy who's looking on um, doesn't actually look anything like um, Billy Warlock, who is the is the lead actor. In fact, if you take a look at the cover for for Society, or indeed the poster for Society, he looks a lot like James Franco. Um, so yeah, uh, looks a bit like James Franco is watching a woman pull her face off, um, and the woman pulling her face off doesn't look unlike Laura Palmer actually. Um, so again, not at all like the main actress in the film. Um, so yeah, that's the uh, that's the image anyway. And then we've got the tagline: "It's all about fitting in." So that's excellent. Um, it's an unusual cover in that sort of half the uh, sorry, not half, but sort of let's say about uh, a quarter of the front of it is taken up by the uh, the title of the film going down the right hand side. So you've got the main image, and rather than have the the the, the title at the bottom, um, or indeed at the top, it's it's right down the right hand side, which is is very strange indeed. Then there's the Medusa Pictures logo, which sits at the bottom, and the uh, the all important eighteen rating. Um, it is the uh, the more modern Medusa Pictures logo, which is the sort of uh, slice of celluloid uh, logo, um, which came after 
um, the sort of Gorgon head, um, the Gorgon head Medusa home video logo um, of the mid to late 80s. Um, and as we turn around to the side, we've got a picture of Billy Warlock looking nothing like James Franco. Uh, the title of the movie, Society Down the Side, this is in hi-fi stereo on VHS and the um, the all-important... Um, Number code for this is MO209. Um, then there's the Medusa Pictures logo, and then we turn around to the back. Society written across the top, um, and some images along the side. Now, I might not have noticed this at the time, but um, I can certainly notice it now. All of the images that are on the back, there are one, two, three, four, eight images on the back of the society box. Um, all of the images uh, are at least, yeah, all of them except one, and even that looks slightly out. Um, all of these images have been kind of stretched all over the place, so people are kind of, they've stretched these images to fit into these little sections, and it kind of looks a bit horrible, to be honest. In fact, it looks a lot horrible. Um so you've got Billy Warlock, a picture of Billy Warlock looking all stretched upwards, uh, a picture of a guy who's all sweaty and his lips are doing something, a picture of a leering guy with a, a, um, a cigar in his mouth, Billy Warlock with a knife looking like he's kind of hiding from something terrible, um, a sexy lady who is the, the lead actress um, lay on a bed, there's a picture of a pig-faced girl um, who I vaguely remember from the movie as well, um, a picture of the family, who, which is the family that Billy Warlock is kind of um, with, um, and then another picture of the family in a more sort of uh, sexual moment. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, the reasons for that will become clear when we get into the movie later. Um, I will read you the blurb. Um, so, for Billy Whitney, fear plays a large part in family life. He senses something terrible is about to happen, that his parents' strange relationships hide something monstrous, unspeakable. Others call him paranoid, but Billy's convinced his friends are out to get him, and he knows if he makes waves, he's going to drown. Billy's psychiatrist has warned him, in high-class society, some people make the rules and others have to follow them. And if he doesn't do what his parents expect, some very bad things are going to happen. What is the incredible conspiracy that lurks beneath the smooth surface of his mother and father's rich and privileged society? Billy's been seeing things that defy reality. Is it his imagination, or did his parents, his sister, and the college playboy really join in a hideous event of sex and murder? Tonight Billy is going to find out the truth. Tonight there's a party being thrown in his honour. Tonight, Billy is going to become one with society, and he's going to discover it's all a matter of good breeding. Now, I think this blurb needs to be commended for actually uh, somehow being able to explain the bizarre plot of, uh, of society, um, the bizarre and very creepy plot of society. So anyway, that is the cover. Let's pop open this uh, lovely white Medusa embossed box um, and take a look at the film itself. So as I say, Medusa embossed box with the uh, the new Medusa Pictures logo and also the uh, the Gorgon Medusa home video logo on the inside sleeve. They went through a bit of a transitional period, Medusa, around this time. Um, and, and sort of the embossed boxes for some reason had both logos on um, and let's pop this in and take a look at the trailers 
guy, so this is the more recent Medusa Pictures logo. It's not quite as nice as the old Gorgon version, but there you go. Medusa previews. There we go. They're born Siamese twins. It's been a while. They're cut apart. Okay, so this is a horror Kills movie. Doctors, but now... <gasps> One that I don't recognise. So where are they? Looks like something with lots of prosthetics. Oh, hang on. Favorite twins have returned. Oh, this is Basket Case. Now I it's Basket Case three. They found some new. I believe there are others here like you, others who have been hurt and need to be hidden and sheltered. Yeah, so um, bit of a preview of the uh, Basket Case uh, upcoming Basket Case episodes of Adventures in VHS. This is a trailer for um, is it Basket Case Three or Two? I think it's I think it's two. Maybe it's three. I'm trying to remember what happens in which now. Yeah, no, it's, it's Basket Case Three. It must be. But essentially, this is the uh, instalment in the Basket Case trilogy where um, where Belial and his brother uh, manage to find some um, kindred spirits. So they find a, a, they essentially end up in a house of freaks uh, where they can all kind of live together and, and, and be happy as freaks um, for a certain while, anyway. The creator of Basket Case. What's in the basket? I think it must be Basket Case 2 then. Hey, it's okay. We're together again. It's a great movie as well, but I'll talk more about that on an upcoming podcast. A forbidden jungle where the deepest, darkest danger lies just ahead. Could it be some sort of post Vietnam? No, 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 it's not. Okay. Don't recognise this. Lurks at every turn. It looks like the guy dies quite early in this film. He's alive. I know it. I feel it. Maybe not. In he's this alive. savage land, it's not how you're going to die. This place is dead. It's when. <laughs> what they can't see strikes out of nowhere. <laughs> We're not going to get out of here. It looks like a fairly typical predator-style. Um, the action holds them prisoner, unleashing their most primal I fears. don't know if this. Um, yeah, it genuinely looks like it's ripping a lot of stuff off Predator, but I don't think there's any sort of sci-fi element to it. It looks a little bit just like the jungle is killing these soldiers. Um, <clears throat> but we'll see. There is no retreat. There is no escape. Enemy unseen. I've never heard of that. I've never even seen the, the sleeve knocking about, so it didn't look great, to be honest. And we've got another trailer coming up. Herbert West. Okay, this is the um, animator. So, as far as Adventures in VHS is concerned, Society sits. Um, pretty much in the sweet spot um, the reanimated films don't make an appearance in the book but I think you can kind of tell from a couple of the trailers here this is really kind of my era this sort of like late 80s um, Brian Yusner and, and, and Stuart 
Garden type stuff and Frank Hennenbar. Like these are these are real these really are the sort of directors that are at the heart of Adventures in VHS. So it's nice to see uh, Reanimator uh, Reanimator Two. I think this this is Reanimator Two sort of crop up as well. Um, I love the Reanimator films. I love all of them. Something so shocking it must be true. Bride of Reanimator. It's been a while since I saw any of these, actually. I wouldn't mind rewatching. So the Reanimator movies are quite strange as well because they they really know what they are. They're not comedies because they do play it a little bit seriously. Um, Oh, it's Reanimator 2. Okay. Um, yeah, they're kind of they're silly and they're comedic, but they're not they're not jokey, um, and they're supposedly based on Lovecraft. Um, yeah, so if you haven't seen those, then you really need to fix that. And we've got another one. And at the same time, I'm going to have to mess about with the tracking a little bit. It's kind of a bit poor. Motion picture Frankenstein. In 1935, horror turned to terror with the bride of Frankenstein. Okay. In 1990, the makers of Basket Case and Brain Dance bring you Frank and Hooker. Frank and Hooker. <laughs> Just Frank Frankenstein. Well, the ingenuity. Just as I was saying about the sort of golden era of VHS, as far as I'm concerned, anyway, um, up crops another film that. Um, that is from that era. Um, Frankenhooker is a movie that I... Well, actually, I didn't cover Frankenhooker for Rental, for Rentals Revisited, but I did cover it for um, Free Sweetler Film. I think it was for the was it Halloween Countdown series of articles that we did, quite possibly. Um, but yeah, Frankenhooker is an amazing film. And um, Arrow Video did a decent release of it a few couple of years back as well, so... Again, if you haven't seen Frackenoka, you should definitely pick it up and uh, make sure you pick up the Blu-ray for it. Okay, I am struggling with tracking just a little bit, so I may have to um, I may have to do my special move. Some assembly may be required. Sorry about this, folks, but you know. If any of you had uh, VHS players back in the day, you will know that sometimes you need to do this. Take out the tape, tighten the spools, give it a blow. Let's have a look. Fixed. Sort of. And then a bit more tracking. And we are golden. There you go, the magic touch. Never lost it. Welcome to Flanders Funeral Home. Don't immediately recognize this. Where loved ones are prepared. For the final journey. I don't know what the other great thing about Medusa films of this and Medusa tapes of this era. You get a nice chunk of trailers, that's what I like. It's not a nice job. But it's a living. Oh, it's okay, I work. I don't recognise this, but it looks kind of. It looks sort of like the burbs or something. This looks great. What's this? 
Oh, I really like the look of this. Kind of recognise the kid as well. He looks a little bit like. Definitely recognise this kid from this movie. I'm going to have to find out what this is and who he is. I believe I don't recognise this film, it looks brilliant. Grave misdemeanors. Grave misdemeanors. Brilliant. To kill an evening. I am hunting that down immediately. Even more trailers, brilliant. Okay, some sort of alien rip-off maybe. Something's out there. A place where evil Very cheap and blurry. Aliens wreck off. An evil that has been disturbed. Something right at us. The praise. Must no way here. On human life. After the suicide. Nobody docked the ship and then killed himself. This has got cheap aliens wreck off written all over it. What's going on? Without the special effects budget or the talent. Flynn, get out of there! There's something inside of them. Something they got a mind of their own. Does it look watchable? Yeah, it kind of looks watchable, but um, there's a lot of there's a lot of familiar stuff going on in it. Even just the the way the ships are designed, the the stuff that the crew are wearing, they really look like they're on the Nostromo. Or, yeah. This is very heavily influenced. The Bledsoe Summer Fever. What? Robert Sampson, Reanimator. Alan Blumenfeld, K9. And Joe Turkel, Blade Runner. Are lost on the dark side of the moon. The dark side of the moon. Not just a Pink Floyd album anymore. And it's really weird and blurry, so I won't be watching that. Oh, and an extra trailer coming soon from Orion Pictures Corporation. It's always nice to see that Orion logo. A man trying by his own body. Oh, this is Monkey Shine. The start of his new life. So, yeah, Yeah, this is Monkey Shines, the George Romero film, uh, which claims to be the most spine-chilling movie since The Fly. Um, this particular copy's got a big sticker on it with uh, horror written on it, very clear, with drops of blood all over it. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, Monkey Shines, an experiment in fur. Um... I think I I think I picked this up and watched it with the intention of covering it for Adventures in VHS but it was actually one of the movies that just didn't quite make it um, it's not a bad film it's okay I just didn't find there are a number of films that didn't make it into the book and most of the time that was because there just wasn't enough interesting to say about them um, and I think that's something that you can uh, I think that's an accusation you can level at Monkey Shines um, it's it's decent enough but it's a bit dull um, it's a bit predictable as well uh, not one of Romero's best films but then um, not one of his worst either um, anyone who's seen any of the later dead films like Diary of the Dead uh, will probably be able to attest Killer Monkeys. I would imagine that's probably the last trailer. I would be surprised if there's any if there's another one. 
Um, no, we've got the 18 certificate warning, uh, soon to be followed by uh, this dude. Um, yeah, so Simon Bates, is it? No, not Simon Bates. Uh, I can't remember his name. Um, but anyway, yeah, Viva VHS. Um, this film has been classified 18, and after this short break, I'm going to be reviewing it. So uh, join me in just a moment as I reacquaint myself with a film that disturbed me and thrilled me and terrified me as a kid um, simply because of its sheer weirdness. Um, Brian Usner's Society. Hi, I'm John Water. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Pune. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Dwingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine cashiers to cinemart since 1994 since early 2011 i've been co-hosting the projection booth podcast try us won't you i never try anything i just do it visit the projection booth at projection-booth.com Okay, so as I say then, a little bit different for this particular episode. Uh, rather than write a new review for for you, what I decided uh, because this particular review was so important to the uh, to the Adventures in VHS uh, process, I figured it'd be nice to go back and revisit that original review. Now, um, before I get into it, I will um, add in a very quick caveat. Um, yeah, this this was written a few years ago now. Um, not that many years ago, but I think I am not. I'm a lot better a writer nowadays than I was when I was um, writing in 2011 for Eat Sleep Live Film. Uh, sorry, Jordan, if you're listening, uh, but it's true. Um, so yeah, bear, please bear in mind this was written a few years ago. This is not the review that will end up in the Adventures in VHS book. The uh, the review will be rewritten and the movie reassessed, especially for that project. Um, but yeah, let's get into the review that I wrote for Rentals Revisited. Uh, it was originally published in May, I believe, of 2011. So uh, here we go. With the final sequence looming large in my expectations, I was keen to see what the first 80-something minutes of society could offer me. And I'm happy to say it all adds up to a thoroughly watchable experience. Over the course of the movie, we watch as one young man's entire world falls apart around him as the horrific, carnal reality behind the affluent small town he lives in slowly reveals itself, questions are raised about what it is to belong, and whether or not aspiring to be part of the ruling class is a good idea when you're clearly an outsider. When we're introduced to Bill, played by Billy Warlock, we're told this is a kid who has already become somewhat damaged. He openly admits to being scared to his therapist and, we find out later, his status as a college sporting hero and debating champion hides real feelings of anxiety and a sense that he doesn't quite fit in. In this pre credit scene, we're also given the first signal that something beneath the ripe healthy skin of his wealthy middle class suburb is rotten to the fleshy core. Bill and his sister, Jenny, seem to have a pretty healthy relationship. She's a fairly typical teen, looking forward to her societal debutante party, and he seems keen to look out for her, even rescuing her from a kid named Blanchard, who is keen to let her know something strange is going on. But it's Jenny who delivers the first, and one of the final, blows to the ultimate shattering of her brother's reality. 
accidentally, or perhaps not accidentally, you decide, stumbling across her in the shower, Bill sees Jenny's body mysteriously contort as she moans orgasmically and soaps herself. It's the first of many sequences that combine personal sexual gratification with bodily mutation and incestual desire. Plus, it's pretty creepy. Of course, as with most films, the hero gets a love interest. Perhaps the most curious thing here, however, is that it's a princess who isn't in need of rescue. Bill already has a girlfriend, a popularity-obsessed cheerleader who seems only to be with him as she sees it as some kind of meal ticket for peer approval. So, when he hooks up with the mysterious and incredibly attractive Clarissa, the signs should suggest that this will be of his salvation. Unfortunately, when their moment between the silk sheets arrives, Clarissa's glistening skin and optical illusion of a body tells us that if something's going on, she's a part of it. As the weirdness continues to spiral out of control, Bill finds himself walking in on a suspiciously affectionate moment in his parents' room between his mum, dad and sister. Worse still, Bill's mum seems pretty keen to get her son involved, allowing him to erupt when she suggests he has the potential to make a great contribution to society. Finally severing his ties, he announces he's done with his creepy-ass family aesthetic and is moving out, with a great parting shot of his father that comes back to haunt him later. Fuck you, butthead. What follows is the obligatory sequence in which the central lead seems to have tapped into something that no one else knows about. People think he's crazy, either because they don't believe his theories or because they're lying to protect the truth. Either way, his family, the police and even the women in his life can't or won't help him. In the past, I've alluded to my love of films that offer this dynamic. There's something I find incredibly terrifying about the idea that there's a dark secret that everyone shares and that you're the last to know about it. While there are some pretty obvious issues around class that seep from every dripping pore of society, my interest in it become, comes from the way it seems to fuse the rampant sexu sexuality of something like Caligula with the eerie paranoia of the Stepford Wives, one of the many films you could class under the body snatchers genre. Mix in with this the prosthetic effects of something like Reanimator, which, of course, Usner directed the first sequel to, and you have a deliciously messed up, freakishly thrilling dark thriller with a bitter comic centre. And what of the final insanely memorable and disgustingly bizarre finale, in which the secret society of hedonistic, incestuous, paedophilic, suburban aberrations bind together in some sadomasochistic, cannibalistic orgy of filth and gore? Well, it was every bit as creepy and disturbing as I'd remembered. But more importantly, in the context of everything that came before, it seemed even more sinister and uncanny than my mind had allowed me to think it could be. I love nothing that more than being pinned to my chair with a feeling of quiet, unsettled shock, and I have to admit that putting the whole of society together with an older, slightly wiser brain, I probably relished it even more this time around for its sheer oddness. I think I now know what my parents must have been thinking as they shifted uncomfortably in their seat watching this delightful little slice of weirdness, although I'm pretty sure mine was a more enjoyable experience on both occasions. Well, there you go. There's my review from 2011 of uh, Brian Usner's Society. I think I'd probably still agree with all that, which I'm kind of shocked at. Um... I I had forgotten actually that it it was kind of more powerful to me uh, the second time around or you know maybe it was the third or fourth depending on how many times I saw it the first time I saw it um, 
But yeah, I, I had kind of forgotten that for me, this sort of Rentals Revisited watch had sort of been more interesting because I got on board more with all the sort of, you know, the, the class um the class stuff that was in there. I mean, I think I was kind of, I was a pretty smart 11, 12 year old kid. I think I probably would have picked up on all that stuff. Uh, but I think what was a success about society for me the first time around uh, was obviously, you know, the, the, the special effects, but also the idea of, um, like I say in the review, also the idea that sort of everybody's out to get you. I used to have this sort of strange fantasy when I was a kid that like uh, sort of, nightmarish fantasy not something sort of positive this strange sort of fantasy about the idea that everybody was a robot and i was the only one and and, and that one day it all come true and i'd kind of i'd be attacked by somebody i knew and then i'd run for help to my mum and dad and they'd be robots and then i'd run to the police and you know and then obviously when once you've been to the police who do you go to next you go to the queen uh, oh that's what i thought when i was a kid um, and she'd turn out to be a robot so <laughs> even from an early age i was very interested in the idea of sort of you know everybody being against you and and just just discovering that everybody is not what they seem so so like i say the stepford wives is a film that i that terrified me as a kid when i saw it but i kind of loved at the same time and you know and obviously that there are body there are a ton of body snatchers films that have happened over the years and and i've always kind of had an interest in in all of those as well um so yeah, it's interesting to see that um, my review from a few years back, I mean, what four years back now, um, is 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 still kind of roughly what I would have, uh, maybe not what I would have wrote, but certainly roughly what I thought today. Um, so there you go. That's my review of um, of Society, a film that I still enjoy very much to this day, and for all the same reasons. After this short break, I will be back with my in depth interview uh, with the film's director. Brian Yuzna. Okay, so you've heard me talk a little bit about the movie Society. It's 1999 UK VHS release on Medusa Pictures and my own thoughts on the film. Uh, I'm now delighted to be able to say that I have the film's director and the man who is a big piece of the Adventures in VHS puzzle, having been involved with movies like From Beyond and Dolls. Uh, Mr. Brian Yuzner is with me. Hello, Brian. Hi, Noel. How are you doing? Fantastic, thank you. And how are yourself? Good. Excellent. Um... So, yeah, first of all, I'd like to say thanks for joining me today um, and also causing me all sorts of childhood trauma with the 1989 film Society. Um, not because I couldn't handle the content, but more because we rented it as a family and watched it together. Um, so, as you can imagine, it was a touch uncomfortable at times. Well, it rem yeah, I remember once my parents came to visit me in L.A. and there was a screening of a double feature that my mom went to that I was introducing of society and bride of reanimator. <laughs> and I, I guess I, I never thought twice about it, but I'm sure that it was, uh, it must've made her cringe a little bit. Yeah. A, a long journey home that night, I'm guessing. So just to move on to society, then it's been 25 years now since you made society. So I'm just wondering, first of all, how do you feel about it today? Looking back? Well, I feel um, really happy that that you're you're like talking to me about it. <laughs> that anybody cares about that movie because you you know I think it's human nature that you work hard doing stuff, and it's nice that 
after a certain amount of time that there's still uh, that it still kind of lives on in a way. Yeah. And with movies, um, it can go either way. You know, I've made a, a whole lot of movies, and most of them are have been forgotten and are probably forgettable. So you kind of need a context to enjoy a movie. And I think with society, it's nice that that context still exists. Um, that said, they, they, it's always good to remember that I considered society for me was a real kind of painful failure uh, at the time. Okay. So the idea that it it's now um, kind of still interesting is um, it's that's a that's really a good feeling. Um, now I know that it wasn't. I thought it was a great movie when it was when we were making it. I thought it was going to, I mean, I just thought this was going to go to the top of the charts. This was going to be a, a huge success. And I was really shocked when it wasn't. Although I must say that, you know, in the UK, it was more successful than anywhere else. And then um, to a lesser degree in, you know, Italy, Spain, and France, it had some success. But back then, there was no internet or the communications weren't all that good, and and also movies weren't released at the same time everywhere. And so what was most important to me was that it didn't work very well in the U.S., and so that kind of was, um, was not much fun for me because I was so wrong. So it's really great now to see that it's, um, it's getting new fans. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's it's something that I touch on in the podcast a little bit as well. Is that sort of it felt um, it felt a little bit notorious on home video here in the UK, um, but for me personally, it kind of disappeared uh, off the face of the planet for a few years. Uh, probably because you know, obviously, back then we didn't have the internet and we didn't have as many format options as we do now. And obviously, like you say, it is sort of celebrated as a cult classic again now. I know you recently made it over to the UK for a screening of it at Celluloid Screams in Sheffield. So I'm wondering what's your take on how modern audiences see it now and what, what do you think it is that they're kind of connecting to? I think that I think what they're connecting to, I think a, bun- a lot of them are the context that they're looking at it through is your your own adventures in VHS kind of attitude, yeah. which is that I think there's a tendency now to look back at sort of what are now considered early days <laughs> of, of a certain type of, of a kind of horror. And it really had a lot to do with video. And certainly my career had a lot to do with the video revolution and the video revolution was in many ways very much like the digital or the internet revolution. The video revolution meant that a lot of people could make movies because the video, the emergence of the, the growth of the video market made it possible. This, the studios took a while to take video seriously, and that meant that independents got to get the money from video and the studios wouldn't even put out their own big pictures. So that meant that a lot of people like me had a chance to work with one of many, many companies who just wanted video product. And it, and it, um, and for some reason there, and I guess horror, you know, after porno, horror's the next 
thing that, you know, kind of drives entertainment. Yeah. And um, video was the same. Porno was the was what people first bought on video. I know the first VHSs that I bought cost $90 each in the 70s, and they were pornos because you could never – this was, like, amazing that you could get a porno. The, then it goes into horror and then you get into probably comedy and dramas. You know, it comes from that. So anyway, there were, I think the horror movies of the 80s were fantastic. It had such a weird kind of a weird tone to them. Now I think that it's been long enough that people look back to that time um, kind of nostalgically, even if they were like five years old at the time, yeah. in the same ways as... I look back, as I was growing up, I look back at the 60s and even the 50s, which I grew up in the 50s and 60s, as being, they're very nostalgic for me. And so you go back to them with a renewed appreciation. And now I think people look at the 80s as this really wacky time of weird hairdos and um, clothing styles uh, it was it had its own sort of weird cultural ideas. It was the Reagan Revolution, so it was the you know greed is good became the mantra. There was uh, you know there was a real it had its own tone, and video had its own tone as far as storytellings. There was a lot of kind of clunkiness to a lot of independent movies, and I think now people love to to enjoy that. And when they look at the old VHSs, they, you know, some people like to even watch movies on VHS. They want to have that cover and they want to have the box. So I think society is looked at within that context. The other thing about the thing that pushes society up a notch, I think, is two things. One is that it's very, very original. It's not, there's no movie quite like it. And yet it's strictly a genre movie. And so the whole, the whole shunting and the society and the idea of taking, um, I guess what you'd call class um, struggles and making a sci-fi horror movie out of it, um, I think that's a little different. And then secondly, um, the effects in it were just, we've never seen that again and we never will because... Nobody will ever do effects strictly um, with with rubber effects, with latex and stuff. It'll, it'll always be digital involved from now on. So there's those. On the one hand, if you're just interested in effects, this is some of the weirdest effects you've ever seen. And if you're just a genre fan, you have a movie that at its time, um, at least I think in the U.K., one reason it worked it was so much better accepted, besides the fact that the company that released it did a good job, was because you don't have to cons- you don't have to convince a Brit about class. It's so intrinsic to just the identity of the UK. Whereas in the US, we live under a different uh, kind of this mythology of the self-made man and the and the idea that if you just work hard, you will be you will rise that there are no classes, that people who have more than you, if you work hard, you'll get more. And I think that during this latest Great Recession, I think that that mythology, um, the Reagan mythology 
of if the rich get richer, everybody's going to do better. I think that that took a big hit in 2008 when the capital markets collapsed. And I think now um, younger people, they, they believe it less. I don't think they think about it, but I think they're more inclined to um, accept this idea that maybe there are people who actually do own most of everything and, and actually see themselves as, as much different from the hoi polloi. So I think those two things helps give society a context. A lot of the fans, they are some of the most cinephilic moviegoers out there. I mean, you don't see people who are comedy fans or drama fans. You know, you don't see other types of movie fans take the interest in film that a, that a genre fan does. I mean, they will split hairs with the minutiae. They... They will know, you know, they will really follow the history. So it's, and you see them at the festivals. So you really do, though, and, and you get new ones as in with new generations. I don't know what it is that, that um, gives rise to this. But when I, you know, just go to a festival like at Sheffield and um, have a full house for a 25-year-old movie, and then have people stick around for an hour after to talk about it. That's really, I mean, that really says a lot about the genre and the genre fan. I think this is, this is people who really take um, movies seriously. Absolutely, and I think one of, the, one of the strengths of the film as well, as you kind of touched on there, is the idea that the, so, you know, everything is set against this backdrop of class and uh, belonging and, and, and sort of, um, you know, being being positioned in the wrong class almost and being swallowed up by that. I mean, obviously, literally. And also another another element of it is, is the paranoia that's in there as well. And that's that's something that's really strong for me and has always been has always been something that I've, I've loved in films like The Stepford Wives and stuff like that. Just the idea that something's going on and you don't quite know what it is. I'm just wondering if those are the things that drew you towards the film, because obviously this was your directorial debut, but before that you'd produced something like seven films at that point in your career and you'd written a few films. So was it that sort of depth that drew you towards society and made you think, you know, this is the one that I have to direct? No, I was driven. I I had only made a few movies, four, I think, when I started directing. I had... I was I had come out of the gate really fast with I threw all my you know I I borrowed money and risked everything I had on Reanimator and I just I won the lottery it was a great movie of course um the company that I gave to distribute it didn't give me the money so I didn't get rich and had to go to court to fight to get it to get anything to get the movie back so it was a standard Hollywood story from that but on the plus side I had, I had tasted a real, um, a real kind of success, a real, uh, a, you know, a movie that will be um, considered a genre classic well after, you know, for another 50 years, I bet. You know, mm-hmm. I think that Reanimator will last. And so then you go, wow, that's incredible. Well, it didn't necessarily mean that um, life was easy after that. You still always have to struggle to get a movie made. And with and I started having troubles. I, you know, it's natural once you start 
working in movies, if you're like me, I, I tend to get in a real involved creatively. At one point, you want to do the directing. So you want to give it a try. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of it was that I started having movies. Um, I'd have financing for movies. And then I would the whole project would fall apart because the director would pull out. And I just realized how my income was going to depend a lot on that. So there was another aspect of it, which was if I write, produce, and direct, it's a one-shot stop. I can get the movie. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of that also is I just wanted to do it, you know. Before we made Reanimator, we watched a bunch of movies looking for inspiration. And Rosemary's Baby is the one that really was the one we watched over and over. Okay. And that's all paranoia. It's all this idea that something's going on that she doesn't know about. Um, the And, of course, there's a lot of movies like that, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You know, this is a, a, a good, uh, a, a um, venerable theme in, in genre movies. I had been working with Dan O'Bannon for almost a year um, before, you know, in the year of 87. Um, Society was shot in the fall of 88. And I and with him, I was working on a project called The Men. And it was about a woman who discovers that all men are aliens. And I love the project. We developed it and developed it and developed it. Dan was going to direct it. But right when I got the financing done, Dan inexplicably pulled out. And all of a sudden, the financing fell apart. And it was really frustrating. And at that point, a friend of mine was starting up a new company called Wild Street Pictures. And this was, uh, this was Paul White and Woody Keith, who were both, both from the UK. Paul White lived in, in Japan, and he, at that time, the Japanese had tons of money. And they were going to finance a slate of movies for him. And, and Keith Wally was, gonna, was the guy in L.A. that was going to supervise the production of them and also set up the foreign sales company. I was friends with Keith, and while I was in Rome shooting dolls and from beyond, Keith Wally actually stayed at my house in L.A. And when he started Wild Street with Paul, this, ha this coincided with, with the falling apart of the, the men. Then I went to Keith and said, hey, let's make, um, you know, hey, I love what you're doing. And he said, yeah, why don't you make a movie with us? And I offered him the reanimator sequel, which I knew was a plum, and I would direct it and produce it. But I said I wanted it to be the second movie because I was afraid that if I direct the first movie I directed, maybe I would make a mess of. And I wanted to make sure I got a second chance. So that's that's a that's kind of a very calculated way to go about it. But that's how I live my life. So then. I, so then I was. So then I looked for a project to do first, and actually, um, uh, the, one of the writers, Rick Fry, came to see me, and um, I didn't know him. He just he just called me up, came by, and gave me a script called Society that he had written with Woody Keith, and Woody Keith is from that world. He's a Beverly Hills kid, and he is kind of a paranoiac, and in a way, Society is this fantastical kind of alternate universe um, auto, autobiographical um, story of Woody Keith. Um, so he is Bill Whitney in a way. And um, 
when I read the script, I was immediately drawn to it because of because it was paranoid like the men. It was the same idea. Whereas on that one, a woman finds this whole this whole invisible power structure world that she was una, unaware of that's so intimate to her. And in society, this kid is paranoid that his parents, he, he is in society. And that paranoia was exactly what drew me to it because I've yeah. been enjoying living in that paranoia world while we develop the men. The only problem with it was that the payoff was that the society, society was using the kids as it would be blood sacrifice. And that didn't appeal to me. I felt like if I was going to make a movie to direct one, I wanted it to be have much cooler visuals than that. And so I, I was a big fan of effects in movies. So at that time, you know, the night, the, all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies were, were basically showcases yeah. for yeah. the um, effects artists. And I, I followed the development of, you know, methacellulose and foam latex and, 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 um, and substitution animatronics and stuff, you know, from, you know, the howling. And, you know, I was very fascinated by all this stuff. I loved it. And I imagined I had had nightmares when I was younger about people's flesh melding into one another and I thought that's what I'd like to see in the movies because I haven't seen it before. Mm-hmm. Then I began developing this idea that turned into the shunting, was, which was that I tried to imagine different scenarios of people's flesh melding together and then tried to come up with a way to give it some sort of narrative logic. Mm-hmm. This coincided with uh, my being introduced to Screaming Mad George, who was Japanese, and the Japanese were very interested that uh, that he should have a part in the movie because um, he would help them with Japan sales. And George, Screaming Mad George, I think his um, original name is Joji Tani, if I'm not mistaken. But he was he's a real art guy, a surrealist art guy. And he had gone to New York to be a part of the punk scene and was had an art punk band called The Mad, mm-hmm. and then he was also a big fan of Screaming, Major, Screaming Jay Hawkins, and so George took on the persona of Screaming Mad George, and um, he he eventually went to L.A. and started doing um, makeup effects, makeup and mechanical effects for the movies, um, and all those all those kind of like rubber guys, as I call them, the guys who came to L.A. to do monster makeup effects. If you went into one of these effects labs, everybody would be wearing a black T-shirt with ACDC or something. And they would have heavy metal blasting on the stereo, and they'd be doing um, monster sculptures and pulling foams and painting masks. And these guys... You know, you just got the feeling that they only had two options in life. One was to be a, a heavy metal guitarist, and the other was to make movie monsters. <laughs> George now, I found a guy who was totally crazy for surrealism, and we just got hit it off. Big, you know, the first 
thing we did when I went over to his house is we watched Andalusian Dog and we looked at Dolly stuff and, he, and we started immediately talking about what became the shunting and um, began designing this event. And then with Woody Keith and Rick Fry, Woody's kind of a real live wire creative guy and he never resisted um, departing from the blood cult. He embraced the um, this new idea wholly, and he's the guy who came up with the idea of calling it the shunting. And then I kept pushing this and trying to take from the original script, I tried to bring into, into focus more the elements that I thought were the most important. They were all already there. There was nothing that wasn't there except the idea that this was a different species of people. That's I brought in this kind of sort of a sci-fi element, you know, that the that the ruler rulers of the earth are people who from caveman times were infected with some kind of a of a parasite that allowed them that allowed them to dominate the others. Yeah. And then they would of course intermarry with each other and they eventually and they became a separate not more than a you know more than a separate um, social group they became they were really a different species and then of course the next question that comes up is why would they go through all this trouble and then why would you go through this whole shunning anyway if this whole elaborate ball um, event when all you need to do is maybe get get a uh, somebody pick somebody off the street and take them home and and um, do a shunting, yeah. get it over with. But I think my logic for that was, you know, we could possibly just you know get some protein mash and get you know just get all the vitamins and and food value we need for our bodies and just take it in. In toothpaste tubes, you know. Yeah. But why? So why do we go through all the trouble of having a seven-course meal? You know, the reason is because we we need to celebrate it. We need to have fun. We got to be entertained. So that was my idea of the shunting. Is it's is something they have to do, but it's developed into a great communal activity. So if I could just go back to the um, – you mentioned – because you did touch upon the um, meeting with Screaming Mad George and, and the sort of um, what it was like to be, to be working with, with prosthetic guys back then. Um, one thing I've always kind of wondered is obviously back in the sort of mid to late 80s, it was a great time for stuff like that. Um, and with, you know, with some of the films that you've done and some of the films that other people were doing around the time, I was just wondering, was the sort of – was there a, a real sort of spirit of competition almost? Because, I mean, society is, is is something that really pushes the envelope with prosthetics. So I'm just wondering, did did it feel like you were all just trying to outdo what the guys down the road were doing with, you know, with the Nightmare on Elm Street films or, or, or whatever else? No, it didn't. I think if I had had the chance to do a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, you know, if I had gotten one of them, to, which I would have would have really liked to have mm-hmm. i i would have tried to outdo every other one of them yeah i definitely would have and within those movies they all tried to outdo each other to do great stuff it was became a showcase yeah i don't think that was, it wasn't the case with society because for for one reason 
we were what we were doing wasn't on the radar. This wasn't being made by New Line or something like that. Yeah. This was this was um, Wild Street Pictures. You know, this was nobody. Uh, this was under the radar. Um, Screaming Mad George was certainly known. He did work on the you know on movies like you know Nightmare on Elm Street, whatever. And I think what he was doing was trying to do what he does. Yeah. I think he finally had a project in which he could do so much of what he does. Yeah. It didn't have to fit in to these very narrow narratives that horror movies have. So with Nightmare on Elm Street, everything's just another way to kill a kid, you know? Well, this wasn't about trying to kill somebody. This was so open form because the concept was so different. I think it just gave George a chance to stretch himself, to express himself. And I don't think in any way he would have thought that he's competing with anybody, except in the sense that anybody that's an artist of any sort probably says, I can do it the greatest, you know. Um, From my point of view, I really did pretty much what I wanted on this movie. And I mostly have in the movies I've done. I didn't have to, you know, for example, on society, nobody ever told me that you couldn't do this. You know, the only thing Keith Wally ever said was what he pushed very hard. And I credit him with, with this of making sure that there was a one-on-one battle between Billy and his um, high school nemesis at the end. And that's not something that I would have, it didn't occur to me that that was important, but it was very important to Keith, uh, to, to Keith, and thank God it was, because without that, you don't quite have an ending. Well, just to ask you one final question, um, going back, and going back to society for a moment as well, um, it would be remiss of me not to ask, um, because as, as recently as a year ago, you did actually say in, in a different interview that you were actively working on a sequel to Society. Is that something that's still happening? Um, and if so, how do you see that story being told for a modern audience? Um, I, before I talked to you, I was just talking to Paul White <laughs> <laughs> about uh, financing a sequel. And I thought about it a lot because I thought... How can you, you know, the original movie is a sucker punch. Mm. It kind of takes you through a movie that seems to be sort of a paranoid high school thriller, or weird thriller, mystery. And then halfway through or two thirds of the way through, bang, it becomes this absolutely wild surreal experience, mm-hmm. transgressive experience. And that is what sells the movie. Well, I think to do a sequel, you can't, you can't, you can't structure it that way again. So that means you can't, you can't have that structure. Um, and it has to kind of reflect more of the times. So my, the, the idea that we're working on is to have it take place over a couple nights at these really exclusive nightclubs on Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset Boulevard. 
Okay. And okay. which always you can't get in. You got to be on the list. You got to go. You know. Then if you get in, you're not at the VIP room. And if you're at the VIP room, hey, the the supermodels and stars are at the VVIP room. And then there's the club that doesn't even have a name outside. You got to know where it is. And then the big thing is you got to get to the after party up in Bel Air. So the idea that we're working on is is a protagonist who's a a girl who is you know, just dying to be on the end. And um, she ends up, you know, the twist is that with Bill Whitney, he discovered the horror and he escaped it. And I think today somebody would discover the horror and they would submit to it they because be I just yeah. want to be a part of it. And I think that's the sickness today is that we would trade our soul just to be in the end crowd. We will be food for society if we just to be a part of them. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that would, that would give it a new twist. We've got some, of course, a whole plot um, um, gimmick twist to it that will, you know, to keep it, to make the whole thing paranoid and interesting and, <clears throat> and kind of impossible. But there's also another element, which is that the younger generation in society are a bit at odds with the old generation because they're not really you know, they're, they're sort of moving the shunting out into areas they shouldn't. Right. So that, I thought that would be another aspect. But, um, you know, every time somebody shows it again or interviews me about it again, it makes me think, God, we got to do this. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree <laughs> you know, more. Because, well, only because it seems like people would like to see it. It does, <laughs> and it sounds – it really, really sounds like there is – I mean – I would not have thought of that angle either, but you're absolutely right. Just the idea that, you know, the the younger modern crowd would push themselves into society to be a part of it. And, and that's a very different... Um, it's a very different experience from Billy's experience in the first film. Um, I guess that uh, at this point, then, that just... Um, there's nothing left for me to say apart from a big thank you once again for joining me again today, Brian. Um, well, thank you for including me. It's been fantastic to speak to you, and and obviously, you know, this is a film that's been with me for many years now, and and will be with me for many years into the future. I think we'll uh, we'll all be looking very intently online every day to see if there's any Society Two news. Um, and yeah, you should uh, be sure and let me know if if there ever is. Um, well. I'll be happy to talk to you again if we get it into production. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for joining me, Brian Yuzner. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Where's Barry Jellybean? Hmm? Where's your mom? Where's she in on this, too? Why don't you come upstairs? I want to be a bad, oh, bad little girl. Is that right, huh? Bad little girl? Oh, huh? Come on, you want to get rough? Things aren't the way they seem, Billy. Oh, yeah? Quit it. Doesn't work anymore. Don't go home, Billy. Don't go home. Are you kidding? They want me home. It's time to party hardy. And that was Adventures in VHS episode 16, Society. I hope you enjoyed hearing it as much as I did making it. For the foreseeable future, all podcasts and videocasts will be made available through the Writer's Shed at Unbound, and in the coming weeks I'll be releasing a few more as we hit certain milestones. Uh, so there's a Basket Case 2 minicast, there's a Basket Case 3 minicast to come, 
Um, plus, I'll be putting out other bits from my interview with Brian Yusner at some point too, uh, once I've cut together the bits that we didn't use for the interview that you just heard and, and I've kind of figured out how to package them all together or something else. Um, so yeah, so so please keep an eye out there. there. There will be much more to come, as well as the occasional blog and maybe excerpts from the book and stuff like that. Um, once again, then, thanks for listening, thanks for pledging, and don't forget the Christmas Care Package edition of the book is available now for a limited time only uh, over at adventuresinvhs.com, uh, and there are sponsorship opportunities, uh, sponsorship opportunities of all um, prices and sizes and whatever, whatever. Um, so please get in touch if you're interested in them. Um, even if you don't want to buy the, the book as a gift, please, please, please share the love about it and, and let anyone you know uh, know who who might be interested um so that's it that's all from me i will speak to you all again very soon ta-ra mm-hmm.